Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. You're listening to The Silver Stream on Soho Radio. I'm creator and host Byzantia Harlow, and for today's episode, Hinterlands, I'm joined by guest collaborator, artist Rhiannon Salisbury. So, thinking about contemporary notions of beauty for a second, and the ideas we've been exploring in the episode already, ideas about where we put things and where we find things, and these containers we construct. For Jeremy Gilbert Rolfe, Supermodels represent the idea of modern global beauty, beauty being thought of as a feminine, frivolous aesthetic that is lacking in intellectual substance. His words, not mine. Um, Whereas the modern sublime for Rolf can be said to be embodied by the internet and the economy, in particular the realm of the stock exchange and techno-capitalism, which offers limitless extension of qualities incalculable in their heterogeneity. So if the modern sublime is to be found in capitalism, it's interesting to consider the current climate, which may lead to a threatened collapse of culture that capitalism has patronised and valued. Perhaps a retrenching to more traditional techniques. Now so much online content is being generated, once we do start to see things in museums and galleries again is going to occur. Perhaps we'll all crave the handmade after the oversaturation of the digital that's going on currently. I personally have like zero interest in looking at a computer screen or my phone screen um, to see like these like digital um, exhibitions that are happening. What do they call them? Like viewing rooms or something? I literally like I have zero interest in it. I mean, of course, works that were existing in interesting domains digitally before lockdown are equally or maybe more interesting to me now. And I have a lot of online projects myself but I just have no interest in um seeing jpegs of like paintings in lieu of seeing them in real life and I really like this is a little off topic but I think it's important like why are curators not thinking of interesting ways to use public spaces at the moment I agree with you about this like online viewing thing like I have been in one online show but it was a video game so it wasn't like as nothing was for sale and they'd taken people's imagery and put it into a video game, which I thought was a really cool idea. Um, and that's actually still online. They're called Boo Boo Studios, so we can put it in the Instagram. But I think when the gallery just does this online viewing platform, it it shows you like even more how it's just a shot because you suddenly just have a picture and a price and everyone's now like exposed like freeze online viewing rooms everything had like a price tag and um i just found it like really obscene as well that some of them are so hard to access like you have to um give an email address and then they have to send you a password and you're only allowed in for a like set amount of time and they're still trying to create this like air of exclusivity at a time like this when we should be kind of open to like 
you know, more positive ideas of like inclusiveness in our society. Like, yeah. yeah, they're kind of like it sounds like they're trying to like follow some kind of like porn website model. <laughs> like that, that's a weird one. But yeah, it makes sense if it's free, I guess. But yeah, I, I I think it's crazy because like personally, like doorways and windows and open spaces are what curators should be like considering and public space, like going back to the yellow wallpaper that we began on, like I feel like we're all desperate to see something in a different way um, in the visuals we receive. And like, I feel like everyone's going mad in the streets for like their kids that have done like a chalk drawing on a wall or like there's a like a kind of rainbow painting in the window. Like people are going yeah. mad for it. I'm like, oh look, my neighbor's like got a new plant in their front. You know, we're desperate for like visuals at the moment, I feel, um, and like something new in our limited um, realm of where we're allowed to look and go so I just feel like there could be some really interesting artwork getting shown in like vacant shop shutters or like so many things and it's just such lazy curation to like have jpegs of images on viewing rooms as the answer the answer to closed galleries cannot just be these endless images um, images and jpegs of like of of work that stands in at least digital work is work in its own right that exists in the digital realm it's not just a documentation of something in the digital i just think it's really not great and you know expansion of digital digitalization and the potential of the internet for digital dissemination of images has already meant that visual art has had to respond to the prevalence and banality of the digital historically but now even more so and i think this especially applies to painting um, but then again, painters always have had the best time on Instagram and the Instagram initiative to sell artworks during lockdown, the artist support pledge has been good for you, I think. Um, so, you know, who knows? Um, we have kind of got slightly off topic, but it does relate back to the idea of the surface, which we're discussing today. And, you know, Instagram being the surface that can suck you into other worlds like no other. Um, but back to this idea of modern global beauty being represented by the supermodel, there's a quote from an absolutely amazing book, Trick Mirror, by Gia Talentio, uh, and she takes this notion further, and she looks into the complexities of the images we see in magazines as women, and the importance of like that is placed on beauty in society, even within the feminist debate. So I quote, Beauty has historically functioned as a symbol for female worth and morality. In fairy tales, evil women are ugly and beautiful princesses are good. Beauty is now framed as female worth and morality itself. Feminism has faithfully adhered to this idea of beauty as goodness, if often in convoluted ways. The outcry against Photoshop use on ads and magazine covers, which on the one hand instantly exposed the artificiality and dishonesty of the contemporary beauty standard, on the other showed enough of a powerful lingering desire for real beauty that it cleared space for over-heightened expectations. We idealise beauty that appears to require almost no intervention. Women who look poreless and radiant even when barefaced in front of an iPhone camera women who are beautiful in almost punishingly natural ways. Personally, I think it's great that mainstream feminism has driven a movement for body acceptance. We should value bodies at all shapes and sizes, of course. But as Trick Mirror discusses, this is a double-edged issue as the more expansive idea of beauty still gives the impression that, to quote Talentio, 
beauty is still of paramount importance. The default assumption tends to be that it's politically important to designate everyone as beautiful, that it's a meaningful project to make sure everyone can become and feel increasingly beautiful. We have hardly tried to imagine what it might look like if we de-escalated the situation to make beauty matter less. Um, it's, a, it's just like a tricky, like, it feels like almost like a trap either way you kind of approach these things because they're so ingrained. But anyway, maybe a good moment for another track. Uh, this is a favourite of both of ours and it seems appropriate here. So let's hear This Woman's Work by Kate Bush. Pray God you can call in regards to what we were talking about I think a lot about what it is to be a painter and what a painting is and the irony of my working life you know I'm against a lot of things but I'm completely engaged with everything I say I'm against as well um, and you know like what is a painting like we were just saying it's an object of beauty that's bought as a luxury product um, you know, I'm interested in feminism uh, and questioning the portrayal of women, but at the same time, like, I'm a woman who is, like, concerned with, like, fashion and, and makeup and trying to look, like, a certain way. So there's, like, a constant, like, paradox. And part of my main interest is in looking at what we are told to do and look at and be and deconstructing or changing this like narrative to reveal like a subtext um and yeah this is like mainly to do with being frustrated that women are still treated as inferior to men uh even though that's not really like a fashionable or acceptable thing to say in like a lot of contexts i still really feel that's the truth of the world we live in and i'm still really quite angry about it which drives me to make this work um the idealised and unrealistic versions of femininity and beauty that are constantly communicated to us as consumers through the use of advertising uh, is like a very familiar trope that everyone is aware of, but it doesn't stop it having a really deep impact on our psychology. Yeah, just picking up on your comment about your sort of questioning the portrayal of women at the same time as being a woman who wears makeup and buys fashionable clothes. This, this reminded me of another part in Trick Mirror where Talentio says, it is seen as unfeminist to criticize anything that a woman chooses to make herself more successful, even in situations in which women's choices are constrained and dictated both by social expectations and by the arbitrary dividends of work. The timidity of mainstream feminism to admit that women's choices, not just our problems, are in the end political, has led to a vision of women's empowerment that often feels brutally disempowering in the end. Beauty work is labeled self-care to make it sound progressive. Um, this kind of also just reminds me of what you were saying about like you feel like you can't, it's not really like acceptable to say that there is still this difference between how women and men are treated it's weird it's like that it's like an issue in feminism i think where um it's it's kind of been 
usurped by the thing that it's in opposition to i speak about i'm going to speak about this to sum the episode up but there is this thing sometimes of when you're in opposition to something and you kind of get assimilated into the same language that you're using to a good example being and she talks about this in trick mirror as well like the instagram influencer who will have all these images of themselves looking beautiful and then like the next week they'll say oh i'm gonna quit instagram because it's just like really bad for my soul and then there'll be like a week of silence and then they'll come back and do exactly the same thing again and it's almost like they're using the very platform to sort of like critique the thing i don't want to seem pessimistic but there is something that resonates with me just about this idea of almost an entrapment in even discussing these things um, but taking this back to the realm of art, there's a quote from Video Green by Chris Krause, which deals with the idea of what is deemed acceptable in terms of use of feminine experience within artworks, relating to disempowerment masquerading as empowerment, which I think is kind of what we're talking about. Um, and I think it parallels somehow to what we've been touching on. I quote, I think privacy to contemporary female art is what obscenity was to male art and literature of the 1960s. The willingness of someone to use her life as primary material is still deeply disturbing, and even more so if she views her own experience at some remove. There is no problem with female confession, providing it's made within a repentant therapeutic narrative. But to examine things coolly, to thrust experience out of one's own brain and put it on the table, is still too confrontational. It is the distancing of female experience that drives art critics crazy. Refusing the realm of the abject memoir, confession, instead presuming to treat female experience universally. I'm just going to uh, introduce another quote um, in relation to what we've been talking about, because... I, I really um, think what you've just read out is powerful and it just reminded me of this. So this, I don't know who said it, but it was the first thing that I was told um, when I started Turks Banana. It was like something that was put up as a slide and it's just like stayed with me ever since. So it says, the things that cause your greatest private embarrassment are your individuality and need to be foregrounded and cultivated. Try and find an analogue for these things that you can present. Painting is not a craft, it's a proposition. Anything goes, but directness, even if it's the expression of confusion, even and perhaps especially if that doesn't look like art, seems pointless. It's particularly valuable. Know that you've failed before you've even begun and take it from there. Failure is pain, but unavoidable. So um, following on from this, I'd like to talk about Alice Neal, a painter who is really experiencing a lot of press at this moment in time, but who was actually considered deeply unfashionable whilst she was working for the majority of her kind of early life as a painter. Um, so here is a little clip from a interview with her. And you say that your greatest strength as a painter is in your psychological acumen. What do you mean when you say that, Alice Neal? Well, if I had been a psychiatrist, I would be wealthy. <laughs> as it is, in the process of painting someone, uh, I reveal 
not only what shows, but what doesn't show, but what is also characteristic. Well, not only does your career brighten in the 60s, it appears to me, so does your palette. Have your colors become more vibrant? Well, this is, after all, an Olympics poster. But this you're at a number of other works. I'm oh, really yes. using this. Well, you that happened, though, even before I left Harlem. I don't even know why that happened. That just happened in the course of events that my palette brightened. And I was delighted to read Voltaire, Candide. I wish I had read it much earlier, because he showed how you could be pessimistic without being dreary about it. But I approached pessimism in an innocent fashion, and I thought if you were pessimistic, you had to also be rather heavy and dreary. But Candide is anything but dreary, and yet you can't find anything more pessimistic than that. Having just heard from Alice Neal, a woman who spent her life producing figurative paintings at a time when this was deeply unfashionable, yet continued to follow her calling regardless, we are now going to listen to another female powerhouse extol the virtues of following your own path. I'd like to dedicate this to all of the Creator's righteous children. I have some food in my bag for you. Not that edible food, the food you eat? No. I have some food for thought. Since knowledge is infinite, it has infinite. Life. I love the message of empowerment in that track. In relation to doing it for yourself, I think it's a good time to start talking about outsider art, a term which has become very popular in the art world over the last decade, and refers to artists who work primarily driven by a deep compulsion from within themselves to produce work autonomously. What I find most interesting about the individuals labelled by the contemporary art world as outsider artists is that they are markedly people who are making art for themselves and not for a market. So the art has almost a heightened significance, but also irony in that the people who are marketing the outsider artists are thus categorising them in order to make their artworks into saleable goods. However, in the process of making, there's a challenge for schooled contemporary artists who have Instagram or who've been through an institution that seems to lay less heavily on the minds of artists or creators who haven't had this experience. And personally, as a painter, I've spent years looking at the work of other painters, um, learning about rules relating to colour, composition, scale, and also taste. What is good art? What is bad painting? What painting is fashionable right now? All this study and knowledge can take the therapeutic or magical power out of the making. Once you've been through the system, you have to rid yourself of everything you've learned to find your authentic voice that's going to sustain you. I do agree that it's a patronising and strange term, outsider artist, and very fetishistic. Um, and also I think it's loaded with problems. Because we live in a world now where we're all exposed to images, mainly through the media far more than ever before. Everyone's had an education in imagery as a default of existing in a world full of screens, maybe. But learning what's good or bad, fashionable or not liked by your peers and mentors or not, and then trying to disregard all of this is a really tough battle. It's a really hard one journey to find your own language voice as a painter. But maybe it's the authenticity of the voice of the outsider artists like Ramirez that's really appealing. And also the investment in the work they have, which acts as a vessel with an almost 
sacred significance. And I think there's something you'd like to read out together now that sort of relates to this. It's um, Outside Art, Visionary Worlds and Trauma by Daniel, how do I pronounce that? I think it's Wojcik. Okay, should we, uh, should we read that out together? Yeah. Unlike folk art, which is rooted in collective aesthetics and in the traditions of a particular community or subculture, outsider art is usually considered to be an expression of a uniquely personal vision that preoccupies the creator, who is often regarded as disconnected from the broader culture or community. Most of the literature about outsider artists portrays them as self-taught individuals who create things with no regard for recognition or the marketplace, as described by Michael Feather, author of the book Art Brut and the former curator at the collection Art Brut in Lausanne, Switzerland, outsider art consists of works produced by people who for various reasons have not been culturally indoctrinated or socially conditioned. They are all kinds of dwellers on the fringes of society, working outside the fine art system, schools, galleries, museums and so on. These people have produced from the depths of their own personalities and for themselves and no one else, works of outstanding originality in concept, subject and techniques. They are works which own nothing to traditional fashion. These artists make up their own techniques, often with new means and materials, and they create their works for their own use as a kind of private theatre. They choose subjects which are often enigmatic and they do not care about the good opinion of others, even keeping their work secret. Outsider art has also been defined by its qualities of originality and intensity and described often in breathless prose as truly inventive form of art that is potent, evocative, provocative, intensely personal, unselfconscious, expressive, enigmatic, obsessive, vital, disquieting, brutal, subtle, exotic, close to the ground, challenging. Uh, and that makes me think actually of Hilmar F. Klint's work, amazing painter who created this kind of body of paintings that she actually stipulated would not be shown for 50 years after her death because it was too kind of too much for people because they were all sort of like channeled through her mediumship um she's an amazing painter i absolutely love her work she is um but do you know why she said that what, what? Well, what prompted her to make that decision about not showing the work? She was like one of the first female painters to do this type of thing, right? And she was like, oh, no one will understand it because of that. She was, but um, the decision was because like a really respected male artist and uh, like peer of hers or critic came to her studio, saw the work and was very negative about it. And that's what actually prompted her to say, I'm not going to show it now i think it's a really like in regards to the conversation we've been having i think that's quite an interesting point that is interesting but yeah i mean her painting is phenomenal i love her i love um, anyway, <laughs> you are listening to The Silver Stream on Soho Radio. I'm creator and host, Byzantia Harlow, and for today's episode, Hinterlands, I'm joined by guest collaborator, artist Rhiannon Salisbury. So we've just been discussing notions of outsider art, 
And it's interesting thinking about this classification in terms of how work can be incorporated by what they were originally in opposition to. So often artworks are assimilated and subverted from their countercultural origin, and such appropriations allow society to dumpster dive into the subclasses it's demarcated without getting dirty. The avant-garde is often one part of the societal divide taking notice of the other half, and this goes both ways with fetishization of the other or outsider. Usurpation of radicalism by the establishment has become ubiquitous. This can be an inherent quality in art. The radicalism which threatens the culture can be dispersed by the culture falsely integrating this dirty lens documenting the authentic and executing it through conformity by packaging it and exporting it to the masses via a safe place. It allows engagement but at a distance. And this kind of distant engagement um, thrives on sort of alienation, um, social engagement masquerading as a kind of disengagement, and this obviously can't exist in a kind of vacuum state because it relies on another to ignore being looked at and not looking back. Um, and as artists, there is often this fine line that we have to dance around, rejecting values while we integrate them and being absorbed by what we were originally in opposition to. So these lines are drawn, but obviously their margins are collapsible. Um, and like the wallpaper we keep coming back to, um, there does need to be something to pull back against. So this makes me ask sort of questions about what brings a work to bear? What brings a work to life? In the relationship between subject and object, how can the work become an autonomous performer within culture? And how to leave this open enough for the audience to be interpreters and to invent their own translations, to borrow a term from Rancière. In relational aesthetics, Nicholas Broyard states, the artwork strives to achieve modest connections, open up one or two obstructed passages Connect levels of reality kept apart. The contemporary artwork's form is spreading out from its material form. An artwork is a dot on a line. So coming back to Video Green, Chris Krause states, there is a certain preemptive emptiness that pervades the artwork that is produced in the institution. Conceptually coherent and well-made, the greatest triumph of this artwork is illusion. The way it references so much, content dancing on the surface like a million heated molecules until you can't exactly pin it down to any given meaning. As such, it is an embodiment of corporate practice. Never put into writing what can be mumbled on the phone. It's better to be everywhere than somewhere, to manifest a certain edge of elasticity in which authority might see itself reflected, a quality that's come to be defined as beauty. And as Giorgio Ambigan notes in his essay, What is an Apparatus? Those who are truly contemporary, who truly belong to their time, are those who neither perfectly coincide with nor adjust themselves to its demands. They are thus, in a sense, irrelevant. Precisely through this disconnection, this anachronism, they are more capable than others in perceiving and grasping their own time. So artworks, to me, function as mirrors to society, but mirrors that have a sort of dusty accumulation sitting on their surface of all that's come before. They're both dirty and cleansing simultaneously. Mirrors reflect back at us, but their deceptive surface transmutes and nothing is quite as it appears. 
they can reflect back society and they can be dark yet illuminate darkness which needs to be seen. The shadow itself can become the reflected surface and the mirrored reflection can be protective. If you think about, you know, Perseus um, slaying Medusa, the mirror was something that um, rendered something uh, petrifying and made it sort of safe to view. So to conclude our conversation today, Rhiannon, I'd like to play a final track by Dory Previn. Previn wrote a beautiful, melancholic song out of her pain as a psychological process, healing not only for her, but soothing and touching for others. In the 1950s, she was a lyricist from Hollywood movie songs, and she was married to a very famous composer and conductor, Andre Previn. But this marriage disintegrated following his affair with Mia Farrow. So she kind of retreated back into hospital where, as therapy, she was encouraged to write these songs of self-analysis. Um, and this sort of last track today uh, is called Beware of Young Girls and it was written out of her pain um, about Mia Farrow, her friend, seducing her then husband. Beware of young girls who come to the door Wistful and pale of twenty and four Delivering daisies with delicate hands so when I listened to this in relation to today's discussion, it made me think about trauma as enlightenment. In Feet of Clay by Anthony Storr, the author notes that most historical gurus we can think of, from Jung to Jesus to cult leaders, all followed a pattern of breakdown followed by breakthrough. I feel artists can also kind of utilize this process of dredging the dark depths for the sublime. From the chaos comes a desire to create order and a solution. And I think artworks can be like mirrors for the maker's psyche and the collective psyche at the time. And it can turn the maker and society's sort of psychological dirt into something enlightening and healing. Uh, and this sort of, this makes me think about these, these uh, points of weaknesses and trauma that can contain sort of beauty and light. Often in society, for something to be strong or perfect, it's supposed to be a solid whole untarnished and pure thing. But the places where the wallpaper peels back to reveal what lies beneath, the site where things break apart, our emotional fractures can become a point for calcification and strengthening to occur. You know, like when you break a bone and it heals stronger. Similarly, these corrosions and corruptions can be places of growth and transmutation. Just like how a grain of dirt gets inside an oyster shell and around this corruption a pearl can form, so beauty can be accrued through imperfection. Um, dust and dirt can speak of death, passing time and derision, but this dirt can be an earthbed of genesis. It can be fertile ground, sacred ground we wish to stand upon. It can be a substrate into which planted seed can germinate and grow, thonic and natural. In the same way, artworks can function as a means for transformation, healing and liberating for both the maker and for the viewer. And now it's time for the regular segment from writer and curator Charlie Mills, who responds to the episode themes each month. Hello everyone, Charlie Mills here, back for my regular feature as part of Byzantia Harlow's majestic monthly show on Soho Radio, the as ever elliptical enchanting and enigmatic The Silver Stream. 
This month, Byzanta is joined by a mutual friend and studio mate of both of ours, the figurative painter Rhiannon Rebecca Salisbury, herself just as indefatigable with a brush as Byzantia is with a tarot card. And they'll be talking about her recent work, practice, and the surrounding world of ideas that help inform her idiosyncratic style of image making and personal expression. In light of the subjects raised in their conversation, I'd like to spend a moment thinking through an equally fugitive work of art and cinema that has long stayed with me since I first watched it back in around 2012, I think. Uh, the work in question touches upon similar themes raised in their conversation. Nostalgia and a loss of innocence, fear, desire, the darker side of human psychology and sexual politics. However, it's important to note that there exists no umbilical cord between the two conversations, and that the subjects of my musings this month is wholly personal and a tendential preserve only. Uh, the film I'm referring to is Danish director Lars von Trier's Antichrist, which was originally released in 2009 to much journalistic fanfare, and to this day subject to persistent popular and critical reproval. Of course, the film's controversy is undeniable, as is much of von Trier's personal and professional reputation. The film features extreme imagery, close-ups of genital mutilation and physical abuse that border on sadistic compulsion, arguably running riot with obscenity for obscenity's sake. It has also been accused of misogynistic narrative and symbolism throughout, leading to one feminist activist to note, watching this film was like having bad sex with someone you loathe, a hideous combination of sheer boredom and disgust. Von Trier's label as a misogynist is well-versed in the media, having been accused of sexual harassment, bullying and inappropriate behaviour on set by several of his leading actresses, including Nicole Kidman and Icelandic singer Björk, with whom Von Trier won the 2000 Palme d'Or at Cannes for his unrepenting and all-around heart-wrenching musical tragedy, Dancer in the Dark. Antichrist itself is the story of a man and woman, known only as she and he, played by Charlotte Gainsborough and William Defoe, respectively, who, after the accidental death of their infant child, recluse to a cabin in the woods to mourn and overcome their tragedy. This, under the authority of the father's profession as a cognitive behavioural therapist, and his assertion that no therapist can know as much about you as I do. Of course, the cabin in the woods just so happens to be named Eden, abruptly foreshadowing the ancient tale to be embarked upon, what is it to become of humanity once it discovers it has been expelled from the garden and that Satan is now within us? As the film proceeds, the failure of his therapeutic exercises and efforts to psychoanalyse his wife curtail to an outright bullying and are matched by her intensifying violent and sexual aberrations. Here, masculinity is shorthand for rationality, control and the law, femininity with nature, the uncanny energies of the unconscious and unknowable elemental forces. As Steen Christensen comments, the physicality of his bodily control over her in the early stages of the film, holding her down forcefully, regulating her breathing and thus denying her bodily expression, that which gives her emotions, quote, material shape and force, is both a simple allegorical expression of the institutionalised biopower of Western patriarchy as it is a succinct propagation of what, through his understanding of her disease as purely psychological, we see as a further demarcation made between the masculine, he being the representational and her affective body, between human and nature, subject and object. 
However, there are several dimensions to this film which fly way beyond this skeletal reading, which is not to say this reading isn't true, but certainly not the whole picture. Firstly, what makes the film so utterly captivating for me, less the design of violence, is the emphasis on what Slavoj Žižek calls cinematic materialism, a term first used to describe the work of Tchaikovsky and the work of German Expressionism in general, with its emphasis on effective mise-en-scene distortion, dark themes of horror, the powers of nature and chiaroscuro lighting, all of which provoke an effective experience in the viewer, which is not simply to say visceral, uh, rather it's non-symbolic, operating beyond typically human forms of epistemology and experience. In their work, A Thousand Plateaus, Deleuze and Guattari outline what they describe as haptic imagery. They comment, smooth space is filled by events or hastities, far more than formed by perceived things. It is a space of affects, more than one of properties. It is haptic rather than optical perception. Haptic imagery is therefore synesthetic, where the eyes themselves function like organs of touch or smell. It is a form of what Deleuze would call gaseous perception, exemplified in works such as Zyga Vertov's Man with a Movie Camera. Uh, which really pioneered attempts to create a kind of machinic vision, uh, which is not simply a kind of technologically advanced form of camera, rather the camera becomes de-anthropomorphized and reflects an objective form of vision, which is beyond the static, univocal and egocentric perception of humanity. This compositional strategy of camera consciousness is typically manifest in anonymous camera perspectives, close-up camera work panning the surface textures of bodies and objects, sensuous provocations, such as imagery that evokes memories of the senses, characters engaged in acute sensory activity, obscure, oblique or grainy imagery, or changing from over to underexposure. In this sense, the haptic image is in a sense less complete, requiring the viewer to contemplate the image as a material presence rather than an easily identifiable representational cog in a narrative wheel. Taken as as an example, uh, Antichrist's opening scene, which periodically resurfaces throughout the film, we are confronted with the acute, sensuous, close-up black-and-white imagery of the couple engaging in intercourse, accompanied by varying sensuous provocations, such as close-ups of rippling flesh, water dripping over skin, etc., juxtaposed with the equally traumatic experience of seeing a child fall to their death. It is an extremely haptic scene, what Deleuze would call art as a block of sensations. Rewritten through a Lacanian lexicon, this time of the real is neither symbolic time of the diegetic space, nor the time of the reality of R, the spectator's, viewing of the film, but an indeterminate domain, what Schelling would call spiritual corporeality. The point here is that through these sequences, the film enters a kind of third space of perception, beyond simple binaries of male, female, human, machine, nature. A similar deconstruction is at work and present in the activities of she, who aside from her tumultuous therapy and mourning alongside he, is subject to increasingly eccentric, aberrant and dreamlike occurrences throughout the film. In this vein, the obscenities of Antichrist are, as Magdalena Zolkos explains, in a very real sense traumatic, these traumatic images, the two major examples being when she uh, masturbates a knocked unconscious he until he ejaculates blood, and a spine-chilling slow-motion close-up of her own self-inflicted castration, 
are just so because of their power to interrogate established modes of rational and masculine relationality. As she explains, the film's traumatic quality is a site where the viewer confronts her or his desire, shared with the male character of Antichrist, to relate to the world through economies of relationality and calculation, or the prohibition. As Nina Power aptly suggests, Antichrist undermines the unthinking acceptance of modern rationality and the masculine facades of caring liberal humanism by depicting scenes of such cosmic misalignment between its hierarchically ordered categories, man, nature, woman. This we know only too well from the work of psychoanalyst Julia Kristeva and her notion of the abject. For Kristeva, the abject is that which displaces simple demarcations of subject and object. Her grotesque actions reflect what Kristeva refers to as the abject or demonical potential of the feminine, this she sees as antagonizing sentiments of both repulsion and attraction found towards the female body, its insides, its fluids, especially associated with maternal corporeality. Importantly, this separation instigated by the abject manifests a desire for a pre-symbolic, continuous relationship with the world, or again in Lacanian terms, the real. As Stephen Shaviro notes, it is impossible to reduce sexual passion to a desire for self-identity, wholeness, security, and recognition. The masochist, for example, seeks not to reach final consummation, but to hold it off, to prolong the frenzy. Furthermore, the experience of she in the film cannot be reduced solely to the psychoanalytic cliché of the price of cultural emancipation from animality, but in fact a link to a far wider milieu throughout the film. Between scenes of her and her husband, we see the croaking of an immortal raven, a fox that devours its own entrails whilst pronouncing the malign dictum, chaos reigns, a stillborn fawn still half-emerging from its mother's cervix, lost in the woods. We see an emaciated and knotted dead tree that she sees as embodying an odd personality, one that she simultaneously relates to and yet disregards. And we see the rainfall of acorns that tremble on their roof at night signalling, in her eyes, the eternal suffering of nature and its failure in attempts to truly express itself. Even further, at one point in the film, she dissolves into the green of the grass, literally becoming indiscernible from nature. In Antichrist, the world of nature includes other-than-human phenomena and living beings that the female protagonist invokes through a collective metaplesis. The polysemy of nature establishes a set of complex, though non-homologous, semantic connections between the discourses of gender and the discourses of species. In short, this, along with the cinematic materialism of the film's form, Antichrist configures a coalescence of entities in their mutual attempts of expression and existence, albeit with a focus on the darker side of their suffering and anguish. In a renowned scene, the couple copulate at the roots of a large tree during the night, and the roots and branches of the tree transfigure into human limbs, serpentine and pale-skinned, writhing around them, an expression of mutual alienation and abandonment. That, unlike phenomenological approach, sensation is not imminent to the subject, but to the, to the twitches of a non-human vitalism. To surmise, whilst Antichrist may harbour some nefarious subject matters, it is the destabilising and excessive intensities of affect that rupture our viewing, which are so effective given its form and content. What we see in the film Antichrist is, in the words of Stephen Shaviro, 
a battalion ecstasy of expenditure, of auto-mutilation and self-abandonment, neither imaginary plentitude nor symbolic articulation, but the blinding intoxication of contact with the real. An amazing piece from Charlie, as always. You've been listening to The Silver Stream on Soho Radio. I'm creator and host Byzantia Harlow, and for today's episode, Hinterlands, I was joined by guest collaborator, artist Rhiannon Salisbury. Thanks so much for joining me via Skype today, Rhiannon. It's been great to talk through these ideas with you. The episode has brought a lot of themes from past episodes back around for review, and it's always nice to revisit sort of ideas from new perspectives. Um, We've been exploring areas of interest that are close to my own practice today as well, although we work in such different media. And maybe just let the listeners know your Instagram so they can follow you, and please feel free to plug any upcoming projects if you have any. Thank you, Byzantia. Um, It's always really interesting talking to you about art, I love it, so thank you for having me. Um, My Instagram is Rhiannon R. Salisbury, and I post mainly on there what I have upcoming. Um, I am in a current show with Boo Boo Studios, which you'll find on my Instagram, and ironically in regards of what we were saying before, I'll be on an online show soon. Uh, Details haven't been released yet but I can say it is for a really good cause and we'll be fundraising for um, female victims of domestic abuse so yeah stay tuned for that and yeah thanks B. I'll be back at 6pm on the 29th of June for episode 10 in collaboration with guest artist Irvin Pascal. Pascal's immensely physical totemic works fluctuate between enigmatic and aggressive and address questions of race and masculinity. Thanks once again, Rhiannon, and to the listeners for tuning in. See you next time. Bye.